Good morning. So good to see you here in the house of the Lord once again. And uh, we want to spend a few minutes just reflecting on God's Word, trying to grasp uh, that which He is teaching us. Not an easy passage, uh, looking at Matthew's Gospel, uh, this passage, but also um, relating it then to the reading in, in Philippians. Uh, and it's, um, you know, as I was preparing, I asked the question, and I, I entitled it, A Question of Authority. Ask the question, you know, have you ever had your authority question? I asked that question yesterday where a lot of young people there, you know, they tend to be the ones who question authority more than <laughs> their authority. They don't have the uh, op- uh, opportunity so much yet. But even there, they recognize this, right? I don't know how many of you are parents and those who are parents, you know, especially once they get into their teenage years, you realize that is the norm, questioning of authority. And it doesn't really stop. I remember an instance when I was an officer in NS, and my authority was questioned, right? When I was asking them to do something, they came back at me. And, um, or if you've been a manager or some supervisorial position, right? The question, you, you say something to them, you give them uh, either an order or you tell them, you know, directions. What's the reply? Why should I? And then as parents, what do we say? Because I said so. <laughs> and a lot of it hinges on the fact of how much authority you have. And in some ways, this passage is not unlike that, right? Um, um, in essence, the subtext that the uh, uh, leaders of the Sanhedrin, that's what they are. Uh, you, you pick it up here. It says, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people, i.e. the Sanhedrin, the council that uh, led the Jewish people, the very council that later on in the uh, uh, end of the week uh, condemned Jesus to death. It asked him this question as he was teaching, by what authority are you doing these things? So what authority do you have? And who gave you this authority? Whose authority are you operating under? Now, recognize the um, context of it, right? These things... Not just the fact that he was teaching, but if you read earlier in the chapter, you see that there was that uh, uh, amazing entrance into Jerusalem, riding the donkey, you know, almost uh, messianic in terms of, uh, not almost, but it was a messianic act, right? Proclaiming himself the Messiah. And then after that, he overturns the temple, uh, casting out all the money changers and all the people who are doing business and had occupied the, the, the courts which where the Gentiles were supposed to be and, and, and operate. And, and not only that, seeing Jesus with authority heal the sick, bring about all kinds of uh, deliverance and, and miracles. They asked Him this question. Because why? They were supposed to be the ones in authority. And yet, here they saw Jesus acting as one with authority. And so, you know, it was a question of authority for them. We see the passage as it continues, verse 24. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. This is typical Jesus being Jesus, right? (laughs) You ask him a question, he'll ask you back a question. I don't know, some of us have had teachers like that, right? They use the Socratic method and, you know, you ask teacher, and they say, uh, what do you think? 
<laughs> turn it back on you. Frustrating because if I know, I would ask you. La, you know? <laughs> but the, the intent, of course, is to um, you know, probe and to make an effort to explore our underlying beliefs, you know, ask questions and assumptions. What is it that we are getting at? What is it that forms our views and our opinions? He continues, The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven, i.e. from God, or from man? So they turned and they discussed it amongst themselves. He said, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? Why then did you not get baptized? Why then did you not hear what John said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John who said, I must decrease and he must increase. Right? So they cannot say from heaven, otherwise they should be believing in Jesus. But the flip side also is problematic for them. They say, but if we say from men, we are afraid of the crowd. For they all hold that John was a prophet. Right? You know, historically, for 400 years, there was silence in Israel. The last prophet, you know, operated... Uh, way back 400 years before Jesus' day. And when John burst onto the scene, everyone said, wow, God is speaking to Israel again. And there was general acknowledgement and even they couldn't dispute that John operated in the mold of the Old Testament prophets. So they dare not say, no, he's just a man. So what do they do? Typical say, don't know. <laughs> I don't know, right? And Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. You're not really interested in asking that question. Your willingness to submit to the authority of God is not there. Because you can't even honestly deal with it. I mean, there isn't a, a, a way you can say don't know, right? Obviously, you have to fall on one side or the other. The reality is they couldn't submit to what God was doing at work. And that's why you see Jesus then launches straight away into this parable. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. Does this sound familiar? A man had two sons. Jesus told another parable about a man with two sons. And I think there's a corollary here, and it's not unlike that, because, you know, he was telling, uh, speaking to the same crowd, speaking to the same people with the same uh, issues. He says, and the first, he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. <laughs> you know, we know some of our children like that. No, nope, I don't want. Right? Then you go to the other son and say uh, uh, the same thing. And he answered, I go, sir. Uh, it reminds me of sometimes, oh, wash the dishes, okay? Yes, sir. And then come back, you know, in the evening, still unwashed. <laughs> right? It's typical, but did not go. But what's the point of this parable? Jesus says, and asked the question, who of the two did the will of the Father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes, go into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in a way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds, and believed him. That's the crux of the lesson. When they encounter through true authority, are they willing to change their minds? Are they willing 
that's what the issue was with the first son, right? He changed his mind and he went. Not that his actions in the first place of denying or disobeying the father were right. This word, change of mind, meta uh, lomai, has a cognizant, uh, a cognate word which is uh, metanoia, which we know better. And both actually have this connotation of repentance, this change of mind, this willingness to turn from your ways and turn back to God. You know, Jesus was an equal opportunity um, um, prophet or, 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 you know, he, he called out people with equal opportunities, better way of seeing it. He was more than a prophet, obviously, son of God. But what I, I mean is this, you know, he didn't just have a problem with the religious. It seems that way. He also called out the irreligious, right? That the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him because he did call them out and pointed to their sin. The message was the same. The kingdom of heaven is among you. Repent and believe. That's precisely the gospel, isn't it? That's what Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he learned this lesson. When the crowds heard him and they saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they turned to Peter and said, you know, what must we do to be saved? He said, repent and be baptized, i.e. believe, i.e. act in belief, in faith. See, the problem I think that the religious leaders had, and the problem most of us have, whether we are religious or irreligious, is we believe too much our own positions. We are too certain of our own authority. What do I mean by that? You know, it really goes back to uh, original sin in the Garden of Eden, Eden. When the serpent came and you know, spoke to Adam and Eve, he asked them this question, which rings out throughout history. Did God really say? Right? The world we live in today has discarded the authority of God. We've, you know, tried to bypass it in, in ways in which we, we see. And, and post-fall, our reason is tainted. There's a problem with the way we think. That we have this uh, deep propensity, this uh, uh, um, bent towards self-deception. I was sharing uh, uh, yesterday about Francis Bacon. If you know your history, uh, you know that Francis Bacon was um, the father of empiricism. He's one of those who brought in and, and advocated the scientific method. And do you know why he did it? Because he understood the nature of humankind after the fall. That, you know, at the end of the day, there are boundaries to our human understanding that we, our reason is finite, our senses can deceive us. And because of that, he believed that you need many people to pursue and confirm and reconfirm you know, uh, findings to, to find out the truth of the natural world. And so experimentation and you know, not doing it just yourself, but having someone else do it as well to take out any um, um, doubt that there's some bias as the experimenter, you know, and, and, and uh, that's the, the, the nature of uh, the scientific enterprise. But we seem to have forgotten that, you know, and, and the reality, and this is a 
quote which yesterday I tried to quote without putting it up on screen. And some of them said to me, Pastor Tu Chim, you better put it up on screen. <laughs> Basically, uh, this is a quote from Peter Harrison. Uh, not a Christian book, but a book that's written, comes out of Cambridge University Press, The Fall of Man and the Foundations of Science, tracing where science developed. It developed from a Christian worldview. You realize that? You know, and he said this uh, uh, about uh, the development of science, Peter Harrison, in the early days of modern science, the commitment to the pursuit of knowledge and technology was thus tempered by the realization that this knowledge would be but partial and probably that it would be attained only after much drudgery and labor, and that it would require the coordinated efforts of many individuals. Hence the scientific method, that we need to test and test, retest the hypothesis, confirm it, and double confirm, and triple confirm, and you know, however many times you confirm. You know, that's the way in which progress and knowledge has grown. Because we don't assume that that person is always right. We, you know, there's this certain level of skepticism or a certain level of humility also. If I'm the person that discovered it, I open it up to the scientific community to test whether what I concluded is correct. You know? And then he continues, These notions occupy a vitally important place in the genealogy of modern science. And they remain as features of the scientific enterprise to the present. It is thus the recognition of the radically circumscribed nature of human knowledge, the radically limited nature of human knowledge, the fact that human reason is tainted, that has made possible the advances of modern science. And yet, you know, sometimes people look to science as a new god. Right now, one of my um, church history professors used to point out the distinction between science and scientism. You know, science is a gift from God. It's not the enemy for us as Christians. What has set itself up as another God is what he calls scientism, the ideology that science explains everything. That all we need to know we can discover from science and you don't need any knowledge outside of that. You know, and that's this hubris Asking the question, uh, by what authority and who gave you this authority? That's the question that plagues us as human beings. You know, that's the source of, of, of the problem of uh, fake news, right? We've come through a pandemic where we've seen uh, so much information out there and we don't know how to sift the information. And part of the way we sift information is we look for sources of information that are peer-reviewed that have multiple eyes checking the information. Don't believe everything you see just because it's on the internet. Internet, oh, must be true. And then they cite some doctor. But the question is, what does the community say? What do people with many eyes on it say? And that's how we sort of arrive at the approximation of truth. And that's why sometimes scientific endeavor is not a, uh, a perfect uh, action. That Why science changes its mind. One day, coffee is bad for you. Next day, coffee is good for you. you know, that sort of thing. Uh, it's because of the way scientific endeavor progresses because there, is a, um, uh, there needs to be a modesty about claiming what we know. Yesterday, I threw a big word at them. Epistemologically modest. <laughs> right? means in terms of our knowledge and our understanding, we exercise modesty, we exercise humility, which then brings us then to the passage in uh, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. 
a verse which very early in my life, when I started out in ministry, like the Lord really brought home to me, <laughs> do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Because... Uh, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I mean, the one hand, it's clear when I entered into full-time ministry, my call was to look into the interests of others, not my own. For Forgo a, a great salary or you know, great trajectory in terms of uh, advancement as far as the world is concerned in Korea, to serve not just God, but to serve those whom God loves. And that's how I did. But actually, it's the first part that the Lord really convicted me on. <laughs> In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That, you know, I, I, um, I should be ashamed, but I'm not ashamed because it's the truth. That there is a pride and a hubris that I've always struggled with. Um, you know, because of the, the gifts God has given me in terms of intellect. That sometimes I, I, not sometimes, quite often, I tend to think I know more than others. And it, it, it creates a problem. And the Lord put His finger on me in that way and said, you cannot assume you know everything. That's why you need the body of Christ. That's why we need one another. That's why we submit to the Word of God. That this sin of pride, you know, you go back again to the Garden of Eden. Not only did Satan say to them, did God really say? He said to them, go ahead, eat. Because in eating of that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. You will be your own authority. You can decide for yourself what is right and what is good. Paul tells the Philippian Christians, no. You know, our mind must be like the mind of Christ. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And he continues towards the end of this passage that we read. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not so, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, some people will stop there. And they turn this uh, 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 verse into a justification for works righteousness. That you need to work out your own salvation. You know, try harder, do better, do more. But they forget this verse 13 continues. You see, in the ESV, they put a comma there because the thought continues. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, I know sometimes I throw at you Greek and Hebrew and I, I Sounds like I'm a master of the languages. Honestly, I know enough so that I, when I read commentaries, I understand the arguments. And what I share with you, oftentimes it's a regurgitation. Uh, you know, honestly, it's, it's like uh, my Chinese. Uh, after the exam pass, you give back. <laughs> and so oftentimes, uh, what I do is I, I look to different uh, paraphrases or translations because they're not perfect. Uh, there's some interpretation that takes place. The ESV we often use because... It tries to be um, uh, fairly um, uh, literal in that uh, uh, directly translates the words. I was sharing with them, but you know, sometimes translating the words doesn't get the, the impact of what it means. It's like saying, catch no ball. 
right? It means something, but the words catch no ball to an English speaker means nothing, right? So I, you say, I don't understand. You would translate you, I don't understand, right? And in the same way, these paraphrases, and one that I really like is done by Eugene Peterson called The Message. And he translates these verses uh, 12 and 13 this way. What I'm getting at, friends, is that you should simply keep on doing what you've done from the beginning. When I was living among you, you lived in responsive obedience. Right? That you obeyed the will of God because you were responding to God and you obeyed. Now that I'm separated from you, keep it up. Better yet, redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation. Working out your salvation is being energetic in your life of salvation. Live out what you've been saved into. Live out your status as people who are justified by faith. Be reverent and be sensitive before God. The energy is God's energy. An energy deep within you, God Himself willing and working at what will give Him the most pleasure. It is the Spirit of God who is at work in us so that we can work out ourselves, so that we can live in accordance with our status. I can't remember who I was talking to, but uh, you know, understanding sanctification is basically getting used to our justification. Some of you um, will remember, I, I watched it because my children were young. Okay, that's my excuse. Princess Diaries. <laughs> about this young girl living in San Francisco suddenly discovers she's a princess. That her uh, father, she's obviously living with her mom, never got to know her dad, her birth father. Father was the uh, heir of some kingdom in Europe, you know, a fictitious kingdom. <laughs> and the whole story is about how um, she uh, uh, learns to live into who she is as a princess and as the heir to a throne. And in many ways, that's what it means for us as Christians to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us. We are justified. We are saved. We are His children. But, you know, it takes some time for us to get used to that status and for us to live into it. So, you know, being people of the gospel doesn't mean we just live our life uh, ignoring the fact. Just because... Our sins are forgiven doesn't mean we continue to sin. Because if we understand what wrought the forgiveness of sins, how can we continue in that way? That's basically what it says. But I ask and we conclude this question, how does God's, deep ener how does God's energy work deep within us? Scripture tells us God opposes the proud but He gives grace to the humble. That's in the context of that passage which Kun uh, Ming quoted, you know. Uh, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Why did Satan fall? He fell because of the sin of pride. Resisting the devil is to submit to God. It, one, you can't have one without the other. You can't you know, continue to be proud and expect the grace of God to come. That pride closes the door on God's grace because we will not submit to Him. How do we then receive His grace? 
So today I want to tell you 10 steps how to become humble. No lah, of course I can't. <laughs> does not work that way. We cannot force or king out humility. Humility comes in submission and being willing to say, God, nevertheless, not my will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And humility often comes to us in living life as we encounter it. I'm going to say something which may shock you in some ways. Maybe the medical condition you have is God's way of teaching you humility. It may be God's hand at work in your life. I know it blows our mind because we always think all sickness and, and, and terrible circumstances are of the devil. But if God's in control, then any circumstance that was perhaps intended for evil can be turned for good. And the Lord allows us to go through these things because He is at work in us to refine us, to help us to be humble, to submit to Him, to resist the devil and pride. You know, what is the work of God? Jesus was asked that question. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Believe the gospel. The gospel is this, quoting Tim Keller, of course, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the word of the cross. That's why this morning we will come to the table of our Lord where we are reminded of His body broken for us and His blood shed for us. That the reason Jesus had to die is because of our sinfulness and our finiteness, our limitedness, our inability to really reason our way out of things. But it's also a reminder of His great love for us. You know, that God loves us with an everlasting love. That He demonstrated His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. Why do we struggle to submit to a God like that? A God who has you know, plans and a future for us. Not to hurt or hinder us, but to help us and to, you know, uh, uh, um, release His glory in us. For those of us who struggle then with submitting to God, submitting to His Word, submitting to what it means to live the Christian life, may I offer this invitation that He offers each of us. Come to me, all you who are weary from struggling on your own and doing it your own way. Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden. I will give you rest, says Jesus. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, 
that we have been recipients of your grace and of your love. Thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us, that you have called us by name, and that we are yours. Yet, Lord, as we've come into your kingdom, there's so many ways in which we have metaphorically come kicking and screaming, still insisting on our own way. Many ways relying on our own thoughts, thinking that we know best, operating out of conceit and selfish ambition. Father, we come before you and we submit fresh to you. We resist the father of lies. And Lord, may he flee from us. Lord, we lay down our pride at the foot of your cross. And we acknowledge who we truly are before you. And in humility, Lord, may you pour out your grace upon us. We ask and we pray. Jesus' most precious name and all God's people say, Amen.